are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, featuring key people on the ground in Ukraine and around the world. I am Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Last May, on Ukraine 242, we brought you an interview with Victoria Amelina, a renowned Ukrainian author of prize-winning novels and children's books, and investigating war crimes with the organization Truth Hounds. Amelina famously unearthed the diary of writer Volodymyr Vakulenko, murdered by the Russians, from the backyard of his father's home. Now it is with great sorrow that I report her death. On June 27th, Amelina was in a restaurant with members of the Colombian media when a Russian missile ripped through the establishment, killing a dozen civilians. Kramatorsk, where the missile strike took place, is a city in Donetsk Oblast between Kharkiv and Mariupol. Victoria Amelina sustained grave injuries to which she succumbed three days later at a hospital in Dnipro. She was surrounded by family and friends. She leaves behind a 10-year-old son. We wish to honor Victoria's memory by rebroadcasting her interview with us from May 23, 2023. Victoria, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thanks for having me. You are a celebrated Ukrainian author and have been a full-time writer since 2015 when your first novel, The Fall Syndrome, about Maidan was published. And in 2017, your novel, Dom's Dream Kingdom, was released and was shortlisted for several prestigious awards. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022 caused you to change direction in your writing and work. Can you tell us about that change? I used to write novels, but in 2022, it became impossible to write fiction. Reality is so much more intense than fiction. It is impossible to invent stories anymore. So basically, in March 2022, I didn't know what to do. But then I remembered that I have friends who work in an NGO called Truth Hounds, documenting war crimes since 2014 both in Ukraine and other countries, for example, Georgia, and war crimes in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, as well as Crimea. So I decided to join them, and right now I'm not only a writer, but also a war crimes researcher. I travel to the liberated areas mostly, and interview people to uncover the war crimes committed on the territory of Ukraine. How do you actually do an investigation with truth hounds? Let's say you travel to, uh, I don't know, Bucha? Bucha, everyone knows this beautiful town which became a symbol of tragedy, but in fact there are many, many villages and towns where tragedies happened at the same scale. So let's take, for example, a town of Balaklia. Now, when you go to Balaklia, you're going with other people, right? Besides yourself, or are you going alone? 
Usually it's a team of four people, but in this case there were six of us because everyone wanted to go on this first mission to the liberated Izum region. It was very important. I was particularly interested in this area because I knew that uh, Ukrainian writer, my colleague Volodymyr Vakulenko, was missing from his native village of Kapitolivka, and I wanted to go and investigate what happened to Volodymyr. So we came to the town of Balaklia in September 2022, a bit more than a week after Ukrainian army liberated the town. You can imagine that the people there were overwhelmed by the experience of occupation and the battles. So I simply stepped out of our minivan and asked a random man on the street if he knows about an abduction of his neighbor. We did some preliminary research, of course, and we have seen that there are people missing in Balaklia and in the neighboring villages. So I had a name of a man who went missing in this particular village near Balaklia. So I asked about this neighbor and this man replied, oh, of course, yes, I know that he was abducted by the Russian occupiers. I also have other neighbors who were abducted, tortured, and you can talk to them. And this man gladly showed us the houses of the survivors of Russian abductions and torture. So this is how we started working on uh, this area, for example. And in the end, we were able to uncover three torture chambers. Many independent witnesses testified about them. And it was important for us to know the locations and uh, to have confirmations of the locations from several sources. And in this first mission, we discovered about 80 uh, people who went through abduction and torture. This number includes both survivors and those who who didn't come back. And right now we count hundreds. So when you go to the Izum area, to Balaklia, and you hear about these torture chambers, and I suppose you see them, correct? I personally didn't go inside the torture chambers since I'm not a forensic expert. I've seen them from outside, but I didn't go inside because I would only contaminate the scene. We have informed Ukrainian law enforcement system so they could send the laboratories and forensic experts who would be able to secure the evidence. So the police gather physical evidence, I suppose, take photographs, etc. And you write about it, correct? Well, I type in the testimonies. I follow what the witness is saying and we always read the testimony aloud to the witness so they could agree with them or correct anything uh, he or she wants and then sign the papers saying that we can represent him and pass his testimony to the Ukrainian law enforcement system, uh, International Criminal Court, archives, you know any partner organizations that might be interested in that. And we often take pictures, in fact, videos of the shell holes, of the ruined buildings, etc. But we don't have any forensic experts on the team. So you're typing up testimonies and then creating files. Do you know specifically which person or people are being accused Yeah, that's, of course, the tricky part, but at the same time, the most important one, because, of course, the ultimate goal is to identify the perpetrators and identify the role of the perpetrators in the alleged war crimes. Of course, many survivors didn't see their faces. People are blindfolded for uh, sometimes weeks or months, and they don't see the faces of people who tortured them. 
yet they hear voices. At times, the occupiers forget about safety and call each other by the name. For example, one woman told me a crazy story because after uh, committing a sexual assault on her, one of the perpetrators basically called to his wife and his child and made her wave to his wife. So stories like that also happen. And so people know, for example, from where the perpetrators are, etc., and it might be still not so easy to define a particular perpetrator, but since we often find documents, for example, like I found several lists with the call signs and a list with the last names of the Russian military, so we can identify which units were located in particular areas and responsible for the areas. And we can establish a chain of command and we can identify using open sources which commanders were responsible for the area. And by establishing the chain of command, we can hold those commanders responsible as well. How do you organize the amount of cases? Right now, more than 87,000 cases are registered by the General Prosecutor's Office and counting, basically, because these are only registered cases. We understand that we will not be able to document all the war crimes, for example, this year. We will keep doing our job, helping Ukrainian law enforcement system and other people, because, you know, basically these war crimes can be tried in other countries as well. For example, if a relative of the murdered person lives in Germany, the case can be taken to the court in Germany. This is a case in many countries, and I hope that Russia will be recognized as a global perpetrator and all the countries will make sure that they take as many cases and as they can. We are ready to support them on the ground, providing this first-hand information that includes human testimonies, but also photographs and videos because usually we are one of the first ones on the site. How are you able to organize these files since there are at least a few groups doing this? That's a good question because, yes, it, it would be bad, you know, if one person is being interviewed by several organizations plus law enforcement system. So if there are two major coalitions. One of them is Tribunal for Putin and the other one is called 5AM Coalition. These are coalitions of nonprofit organizations involved in the war crimes research. So these coalitions have united that databases and Truth Hounds is basically part of both coalitions. So my work is to provide those testimonies. Then we have a person who enters everything into the database and then this information would also come to a united database as well. I do support the idea of digitalizing all the testimonies and our law enforcement system has to do this as well. Because, you know, if uh, we have all the testimonies entered into the database, the investigation will become really easy. Because if in the database we have entities for different perpetrators, different victims, it would be really easy to find similarities, to see how the same perpetrators appear in different testimonies. And so the investigation process would be semi-automated. So the hope is that at some point we'll get to the level when we'll see more and more cases solved because most of the testimonies is digitalized and in the same database.
What is it like for you personally to be listening to these testimonies and documenting them? I don't think about myself in this situation. I think about people who lived through these situations because they are the ones who went through all these horrors. And I'm glad that at least I'm doing something for them. They know that the world cares, that there is a chance for justice, and you know that this is not normal what happened to them. Because people who survived occupation lived for several months in a situation where they cannot complain to anyone. I remember how one man, he wasn't a victim of any particular war crime. He was just an occupation survivor. But he kept saying, I felt like a smallest insect. There was no police, no prosecutors. You know, it was an ordinary worker, but suddenly... During the occupation, he realized how valuable the institutions are and how valuable democracy is and the rule of law is. And he realized that we had them in Ukraine. Not not perfect, of course, but we always could complain and, you know, fight for justice, court, go to the police. And we didn't value these things. And suddenly, during the occupation, he realized that now he feels like a smallest insect. And he was so happy that his village is liberated. And, you know, this gives strength to see those happy stories, because fortunately, this man didn't lose anything. He just had a small hole in his house. He thought that perhaps it's from a Ukrainian mine, so he asked me not not to take a picture of it. I did, of course, but he asked me not to. He said, perhaps it's our guys, and don't write it down. I'm grateful for them. They can make as many holes in my house as they need. Yeah. You mentioned a few minutes ago the war diary of the writer Volodymyr Vaklenko. Where did you find it? How did you find it? So Volodymyr buried his diary in his garden exactly a day before he was taken away and then murdered. He knew that the occupiers would come for him again because they have already taken him once and he realized that they will come back for him after checking his documents, his cell phones. He still had a patriotic ringtone on his phone, for example. They also took his books. All his books, perhaps, were in uh, Ukrainian, so they, they took them away. So he buried his diary in the garden, and he told his father, when our guys come, give it to them. I will also say it in Ukrainian, so maybe you'll have some Ukrainian listeners. So what he meant by our guys was essentially the Ukrainian soldiers. But of course, when Izumo and Kapitolivka were liberated, Ukrainian soldiers didn't ask for the diaries exactly. They mm-hmm. just went through to, you know, to the new front line and, right. you know, and had to arrange new positions and new trenches. So I came to Volodymyr's father almost two weeks after Kapitolivka was liberated. But Volodymyr's father was so devastated by the fact that his son was still missing, despite the fact that, you know, Russians are gone and you hope that maybe magically he will come out of whatever basement they've been holding them in or something. But Volodymyr wasn't coming back, and his father was really devastated, and he forgot about the diary. 
I only remembered about it when I started talking about uh, Volodymyr Vakulenko's books, about his writing, and, you know, I wanted essentially to console his father, telling that his books will be important, uh, that the community cares about him, and that Ukraine issued appeals saying that he's missing, and we will spread the word even more, and we will do everything to find him. Back then, there was still hope that Volodymyr might be alive. And so at that moment, his father remembered that he kept this diary and that he wanted to pass this diary to our guys. So we just went to the garden and, and started searching. Volodymyr's father basically knew where to search, but still he couldn't find it. So I had to dig and to look for it. And, and finally I did. This was perhaps the scariest moment for me during this war, looking for this diary and not being sure if I will be able to find it. Because this would be, you know, like a second death for a writer, trying to pass your message to the world and failing at it. I mean, it's horrible. And as a writer, I can understand this wish to secure whatever writing you have and, and pass it. You know, right now, when I'm going to the war zone, to, to any place which is somewhat dangerous, I also often share the draft of my book with some of my friends. So if anything happens to me, they will have the latest version. So I can really relate to what Volodymyr Vakulenko was feeling when hiding his diary. And it was very important for me to take care of it. And I have passed this war diary to the Kharkiv Literature Museum. This is a museum dedicated mostly to the generation of Ukrainian writers who were executed by the Soviet regime in 1930s. And unfortunately, we have such a sad continuation of this museum's exposition because right now the museum has not only the manuscripts from 1930s, but also one manuscript from 2022, the War Diary of Volodymyr Polenko. Have you read this diary? Yes, I did. It is quite short, in fact. Kapitolivka was occupied on March 7th, and the last day in the diary is March 21st. Volodymyr Vakulenko writes about the Poetry Day, because March 21st is the International Day of Poetry, and Volodymyr remembers this. You know, I didn't remember the poetry days, and he didn't have electricity in his occupied village, he didn't have internet, but he remembered that this is a poetry day. And he's writing that it seems to him that birds in the sky are singing, everything will be Ukraine, I believe in victory. And this is amazing how he had this faith, this hope on March 21st, 2022. I'm not sure I, I had so much hope, but he did. And this is what's in this diary, this hope that Volodymyr still has even under occupation. You are listening to Ukraine 242. We are hearing from Ukrainian author and war crimes investigator, Victoria Amelina. This is Anne Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Victoria Amelina was killed days ago when 13 people were murdered in a Russian missile strike on a restaurant in the city of Kramatorsk. We wish to honor Victoria's memory by rebroadcasting her interview with us, originally broadcast in May.
Victoria Amelino, I understand that you've been writing your own war diary, correct? It's a nonfiction, and I call it War and Justice Diary, looking at women, looking at war. So it's both um, my diary, but also a chronicle of my fellow war crimes researchers. Several women who, like me, decided to pursue justice. And this diary of mine includes a lot of episodes of my collaborations. So I'm trying to cover several women's stories, but all of them are related to fighting for justice. Can you tell us one of those stories? Well, the story of Alexandra Matvichuk. I have to say that uh, Alexandra Matvichuk is a really wonderful person. We should say, since we're talking about her, that Alexandra Matvichuk, Center for Civil Liberties, became a Nobel laureate. I'm trying to go deeper and analyze the teachers Alexandra Matvichuk had, and I'm writing about the generation of 1960s in Ukraine and how Alexandra was connected to some of them. And I'm writing, for example, about how Alexandra and I went to Brussels, to the European Parliament and London, British Parliament in July 2022. And there's a funny episode. My phone got stolen in Brussels and she canceled the interview. I don't remember New York Times or New Yorker (laughs) because her friend, me, needed help. I couldn't find the hotel without having, you know, Google Maps GPS. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and she canceled her interview. I said, no, don't cancel. It's an important interview. And she wasn't a Nobel Peace Prize laureate yet. So, you know, it could be important for her, you know. But she was ready to cancel any interview because her friend was lost in the city without a phone. And that was really moving kind of shows you that she does mean what she says. The women you're writing about in Ukraine are having such important roles in the humanitarian aid, all of the female mayors. Do you know some of those mayors? Yes, I mean, I've met some of them in the Kherson region, and I was quite impressed. Maybe that's the wrong thing to say. I don't know, maybe we shouldn't be saying only that about female mayors, but they do seem to care about their citizens uh, like mothers. And it's very moving and inspiring to watch them. There were tough moments for them. Like, for example, I've seen a mayor who had to go and meet the villagers from a village that was just liberated. So, But that also meant that there are battles in the area. And those people just survived several months of occupation and perhaps had nothing. And, and she had to go and meet them. And we were not allowed to follow her because she was going to the dangerous area and we didn't have a permission to go past the checkpoint. But she went and and it was her desire to go to this dangerous area to meet her fellow citizens and to help them in any way possible. It was very moving. I also saw a mayor who comes by a house of a woman who just lost her husband and has three kids. And this woman is one of our eyewitnesses and the mayor helps her a lot. You can imagine living in a small village just deoccupied, many things are ruined and you have three kids. And of course, this female mayor is supporting this person very, very much. And I think they are lucky to have those mayors. Uh, And I wanted to add a story of a male mayor who cannot walk and he has a wheelchair and he had to leave his village in his wheelchair without a car because otherwise the occupiers would force him to collaborate. And he had to go many, many kilometers just to reach freedom like many Ukrainians did.
I wonder how you see the women of Ukraine going forward. I hear a lot of stories of women who slowly accept the need to join the Ukrainian army. We are not being drafted, and so women choose freely to join or not to join the army. But I hear a lot, I know a case of a war crimes researcher joining the army, human rights defender joining the army, journalists joining the army. For example, I used to organize a literature festival in a small town in the Bakhmut area. And the journalist there wrote a brilliant article about our festival in 2021. And now she's a part of an artillery unit. And yeah, perhaps I could say that women now have to lead more than before. When is your next trip to do documentation? I'm heading to the Kharkiv region, and I will keep working in the Izuma area. And I will also go to the Donetsk region, but not as a war crimes researcher, but as a writer. I want to bring children's books. They need to have new, bright, colorful children's books, good Ukrainian books. You had an abrupt change as a writer when the full-scale invasion started. Can you tell us what happened to you as a writer of fiction and how what you were doing was changed? I used to write long novels. Now I'm writing nonfiction about people like me who decided to join this Ukrainian quest for justice. And I also started writing poetry. And while a decision to write nonfiction was conscious, the decision to write poetry was not. I just felt like I couldn't express myself. I couldn't even write a tweet or a post on social media. So I started writing what uh, could be poetry. I wasn't sure at the time if it is. But it was quite successful. It was widely quoted in The Guardian or New York Times and included in several anthologies of Ukrainian poetry in translation. So I'm coming to realization that perhaps I'm now also a poet. And I like joking about that because, you know, what Russians did to you, they made me a poet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Victoria, I have taken a lot of your time, and I'm grateful to you. Yeah, thank you for what you are doing. I have one question. Under the credits of every show, we play a song. I wanted to know if there's anything in particular you would like us to use. I would like you to use something from Leonard Cohen. Ring the bells that still can ring. There are words, there is a crack in everything. That's how a light gets in, so... Again, thank you and safe travels. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. The birds they sing at the break of day Start again I heard them say Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet Again.
That's how the light gets in. Anthem by Leonard Cohen. We wish to honor Victoria's memory. On June 27th, Amelina was in a restaurant when a Russian missile ripped through the establishment and Victoria sustained grave injuries to which she succumbed three days later. Our condolences to the family and friends of Victoria Amelina. I am Anne Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. To see photographs of Victoria Amelina and to access our complete library of shows, go to ukraine242.com. Until next week, this is Anne Levine and Ukraine 242.